0: This week on the Dan Cave, the Seahawks stay in the playoff race after an impressive win against the Packers, but the road doesn't get any easier from here. How do I feel about Russell Wilson after my strong comments last week? We'll check in on that. As WSU holds on to the number eight spot in the college football playoff poll, I'll tell you why it may be better for the program if they don't make the playoff. And I'll give you my thoughts on what was an ugly week for the Seattle Mariners, off the field. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Let's step inside. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vies. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for listening. I apologize in advance for the voice. But this is what happens when you have a Thursday night football game against the Green Bay Packers under the lights. Uh, it's funny, as I get older, I used to have... No voice the day after a game. But for whatever reason now, I'm fine the day after. It's the second day that gets to me. And uh, I'm definitely feeling it today. But we will fight through this. We will grind through this together, just like the Seahawks did against the Packers after a terrible start. Chris Carson fumbles on the first play. Three plays later, they score a touchdown. They were down 14-3, to the Seahawks were. It felt very similar to me to the tip game, the 2012 NFC Championship game, if you remember, Russell Wilson on on the first drive of the game fumbled while scrambling around at almost the exact same spot on the field. The 49ers had a 10 nothing lead and were a powerful entity back in those days and and Seahawks really had to battle back in that game as well and if you recall, everybody everybody remembers the tip by Sherman but it was some amazing plays made by Wilson down the stretch that uh, that put us in the lead, including a, a gutsy call on fourth down where uh, he threw into the end zone, hit Jermaine Curse for the go-ahead touchdown before Sherman made her history with the, uh, with the tip play. But it reminded me of that game because it started so poorly. There were penalties, false starts. I think the Seahawks were called for four false starts, including one coming out of a timeout, which is infuriating. And I was... I was not happy with the way the game started. I can handle the loss, and I think I tweeted this out. I but I hate when a team shows up unprepared, and and this team looked like it rolled out of the hotel room and down to the stadium completely emotionally unprepared to play this game. Um, they looked overconfident. They weren't focused. Um, and so maybe it took them getting hit in the mouth early on to wake up. But they did. And they pulled out a victory. They get to 5-5 five and five in a still-jumbled NFC playoff race. Put themselves in decent position. But the first thing I want to talk about is this. And we're going to start off talking about the Seahawks this week with our stat of the week. Yay! It's the stat of the week! And this one's really simple. Pete Carroll promised us in the offseason that they were going to address... The running game. They were going to fix the running game. Fired Tom Cable and Daryl Bevel. Hired Mike Solari and Brian Schottenheimer. Drafted Rashad Penny in the first round. Signed DJ Fluker. Signed J.R. Sweezy, etc, etc. It has worked. <laughs> it has worked beautifully. The Seahawks now lead the NFL in rushing, averaging about 150 yards, 154 yards per game. The stat of the week this week is really a couple of different stats that are all kind of wrapped up in each other. The first one is, since week three, because we all know those first two games didn't go well, 64 yards rushing, 74 yards rushing, since week three against the Cowboys, the Seahawks have run for 1,400 yards in eight games. It's 175 yards a game. That's insane. And just for reference, if, if you fold those first two games back in, they've run for a total of 1,543 yards so far this season. Ten games into the season, six games to go. All of 2017, all of last year, the Seahawks rushed for 1,649 yards. They're 100 yards away in week 11 for them from beating last year's entire rushing total. That's crazy. Crazy. They have three backs with over 300 yards. Chris Carson, Mike Davis, Rashad Penny. Last year, Mike Davis led all the running backs for the whole year with 240 yards. They have fixed the run. And I think it's what's really impressive is I was really worried before that Rams game last week without DJ Fluker in the lineup that we weren't going to be able to run the football as effectively. Without Fluker and without Chris Carson. We talked about it on the episode last week. If those two guys don't play, we're in trouble. Those two guys didn't play. Seahawks ran for 270 yards. They ran for almost 300 yards on the road against a good team without their best running back and their best run-blocking lineman. It's it's crazy. And and what it does is it puts them in a position to, to succeed, to beat anybody if you can run the football consistently that's a that's a repeatable skill and they've they've run it against good fronts good defenses talk about that LA rams defensive line how good they are they ran for 270 yards against those guys packers with mike daniels they got some good guys up front when they we all scoffed and and made fun of Brian Schottenheimer in the offseason when he made that comment that our goal this year is to be able to run the football when teams are expecting us to run the football. How does that comment seem now in context? And that was no clearer than when the Seahawks got the ball back, leading by three with four and a half minutes left in that game, knowing Green Bay only had one timeout. They ran the football. They got two first downs. They took a knee. Game over. They haven't been able to do this in a while. People keep talking about the end of 2015 when they went on that run. Carroll's been referencing it himself because they got off to an uneven start and then they reeled off a bunch of wins in a row to get into the playoffs. But that was done so much differently. I remember clearly the end of the Pittsburgh Steelers game at home which was kind of a shootout. And they had to do the same thing. They had the ball back. The few minutes left in the game, trying to run the clock out, trying to get a victory. And when they were faced with a key third down, if you remember, they didn't run the football because they couldn't. Russell Wilson threw it to Doug Baldwin, who beat a guy and scored a touchdown to really put the game out of hand. But they had to throw the ball back then to get those key first downs. Now, my criticisms have been that at times I think we err too much on the side of running the football and there are times that we need to throw the ball. But I felt like, and I haven't had a chance to go back and watch the play-by-play and watch the entire game over again yet. But I feel like I'm going to see that we did throw the ball on first down a few times. We threw it on second down a little bit more than we have the previous couple of weeks. And that really bodes well, especially when you're about to go on the road and go to a place like Carolina, that despite what happened with them last week against Pittsburgh, it'll be interesting to see how they bounce back this week, that really solid defense down there, playing on the road on the East Coast. See if they can do it again. Because you got to get to nine wins to have a shot at the playoffs. Ten would be ideal. That means going 5-1 and one in your last six games. Now that includes three games against Arizona and San Francisco at home and San Francisco on the road. So again, as we talked about last week, you're going to have to win two out of three now against good teams. Carolina on the road, Minnesota at home, Kansas City at home. You can beat Carolina on the road if you run the football effectively. Now I had some things to say about Russell Wilson last week. I was pissed off. I was pissed off that he wasn't good enough for us to beat the Chargers when we should have beaten that team. And I've I've had a lot of discussions with people since then. A lot of people misinterpreted my comments as he sucks, get rid of him. Not the case at all, and I tried to make that point. I love Russell Wilson. I love him. I, I but I feel like you hear this a lot when people talk about their kids, right? When they're angry with their kids, I love my kid. I don't like his behavior. I love Russell Wilson. I want him to be our quarterback for his entire career. I just don't like his behavior sometimes. But I also qualified my statements last week by saying that we need to see some growth still from him, even at this point in his career. We need to see that growth. I feel like we saw it Thursday. I was angry, as many of you were, when he missed Doug Baldwin wide open for a touchdown touchdown. In the first quarter, wide open, and where where the field lays with where my seats are, I was looking. I was watching the binoculars because it was happening at the other end. I usually watch through my binoculars when they're at the north end because I really want to see what's going on up close. And it was in my line of vision. I'm behind Russell Wilson. I could see Doug Baldwin flash open even before he tried to throw the football. I think I even said touchdown. That's a touchdown. And he air mailed it five feet over his head. I was angry; it was a bad play. But he he really stayed calm, and he threw some absolute dimes in that second half. There were two plays back to back to Tyler Lockett that were that were just absolute big time throws, and they came at key moments. He was really good. And here's one thing. Uh, that we need to get used to is Russell Wilson's margin for error is so much less than some of these other quarterbacks, and it's less than it has been in the past because he doesn't get the volume that he did. If he's throwing it 20, 25 times a game and we're running the football 60% of the time, that means when we do throw the football, he's got to be really, really good. And so as many positives as we've seen from this season and as much growth as we've seen, and as much as there is to look forward to in 2019 and beyond, it really all comes down on a weekly basis, maybe more so than ever, how well he plays. I thought, watching it live, that he hung in the pocket at times better than he has in the past, that he moved around and slid in the pocket. I can't remember an instance where he... Bailed out, did his spinaway bailout thing to get into trouble. There were a couple of sacks he took, but they were sacks where the pocket collapsed immediately and he really had nowhere to go. And it's better for him to eat the ball than than try to do something crazy. So I think we did see some growth. We did see some improvement. And there was a story last week that came out that gave me a lot of encouragement as well. If any, if anyone had ever doubted. Russell Wilson's commitment to the game and, and, and whether it's waned or not with all of his outside activities and off-the-field commitments now. And I and I have. I've worried about that. Um, there was a story that came out last week about the things he does during the week in preparation for the game and how he's texting Schottenheimer in the middle of the night, how he's bringing computer printouts with him to the facility to show Schottenheimer some tendencies and and how he's there's a real open line of communication between him and his offensive coordinator about what he thinks works and what he likes to do, and Schottenheimer seems very open to those things. And so while there are still things in the offense that we're not seeing that I'd like to see more of, running back screens, throws to the flat, um, some of those kinds of things. I think we're seeing this offense evolving. By the way, if you're wondering what that sound is in the background, that's Allison. Allie's being a little talkative today. (laughs) Um, So, maybe she's just telling me, come on, come on, Dad, take it easy on Russell. He was really good this week. Really good. It was an interesting experience Thursday night because First of all, the, tag, the Packers are one of those national teams. And it's not that they travel well. They just have fans everywhere. There's four or five teams like that in the league, right? Packers are definitely one of them where people grew up being Packer fans. Um, either because they're from that part of the country or their parents liked the Packers. Or or maybe even growing up here when the Seahawks weren't very good. and Brett Favre was doing his thing and they were fun to watch. It's There were a lot of Packer fans in the stadium. Um, and one of them was my girlfriend (laughs) she grew up in Milwaukee and she loves the Seahawks but there's there's a definite line and if her love for the Seahawks or for the Packers is a 10 out of 10 her love for the Seahawks is an 8 or a 9 but when they play each other there's no question she's a Packer fan so she went in her gear and I went in my gear and I have to say something I I know there's been incidents at the stadium in the past but I've been in other stadiums, and I don't think I've ever seen a more respectful um, interaction between fans. I There were lots of Packer fans all around us, everywhere. I didn't see one single incident in the stands. Nobody yelling at each other. Nobody saying anything derogatory or rude or using bad language. No one said anything to Erica. Um, and I was kind of prepared for that, honestly. I mean, people said funny things like, hey, that's grounds for divorce, or... You know, hey, you're going to put up with that? You know, that kind of thing. But um, it was it's just something I wanted to throw out there and I wanted to say, good on you, 12s. thought it was great. Um, crowd was still loud. I thought even with all the Packer fans in attendance at the beginning of that game was as loud as, as I've heard it in a little while. Yeah. Um, It was a really, really neat atmosphere. The night games always are. I love the primetime night games. I was sad to see that the Week 13 game against the 49ers that was set for Sunday Night Football has been flexed back to a day game. Um, But that was to be expected and understandable. Uh, One more thing on the Seahawks before we move on to other subjects. Let's get to our Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. week. And this one comes to us from Colin Lindstrom. Uh, been a follower and a followee of mine on Twitter for quite some time. Uh, I was tweeting about uh, pass rush. And here's here's what I tweeted. Everyone talking about the Carson fumble and the Russ overthrow, but the difference in this game, as it has been all year, is lack of pass pressure. Priority one, two, and three in the offseason. That's what I tweeted from the game. Lindstrom had a very, a very simple reply to me. He said, go get Clowny." And what he means by that, he's talking, of course, about Jadavian Clowney, who's set to be an unrestricted free agent. There is the thought that the the Houston Texans will not franchise him because that defensive end franchise number is going to be so massive that they may transition tag him and see what he gets and see if they want to match it, or they may just let him walk as a free agent. There's an expectation that Clowney will hit free agency. He has been... uh, He was the first pick in the draft, if you remember, four years ago. He has been inconsistent... In his career, uh, but mostly because of injuries. He's had a hard time staying on the field. But when he has been on the field, he's been um, he's been a dominant player at times. But here's my response to that. Here's my thing. I don't think they need to. And I don't think that's the way to go. The Seahawks are projected to have about $60 million in cap space next year. Um, it could end up being more than that, depending on what they do with some contracts. Um but let's just say 60 million. They have very few of their own free agents that they need to worry about. So it's really a very focused, focused bag. Really, Frank Clark is the guy, and they can franchise tag him. And Clark has said he'll accept a franchise tag. And now he's gonna come in at that defensive end number two. But I think putting all of your eggs in that basket to go get Jadavian Clowney would make it extremely difficult to to accomplish some of the other things on the roster that you need to accomplish. Namely, signing Clark to an extension, signing Jaron Reed to an extension, because that's key. He's really developed into a force at defensive tackle. And then you're going to need to pay your two guards. DJ Fluker, J.R. Sweezy, signed on one-year deals. I think Sweezy being on his third team, coming back to his original organization, probably he's going to be a much more affordable guy. But Fluker might cost you some money. Guards are getting paid these days, and a guy who's 26, 27 years old, in his prime, who's had that kind of impact on the line, um, they're going to have to pay him and keep him. Otherwise, um, there's not a lot more to be done. There's a decision to be made on K.J. Wright, but I think with his health issues this year, that decision might become easier. Um, Either he comes back on a team-friendly deal with not a lot of guaranteed money or they just let him walk. But your secondary is locked up and it's cheap. The rest of your defensive line is locked up and it's cheap. The rest of your offensive line is in place. Your receivers and your running backs are all in place. So you can really focus in the offseason going into 2019, which is why I think that's such an exciting year to look forward to. But rather than put all, even if you could make it work on the salary cap by bringing in Clowney, and re-signing Clark and Reed. I think you'd really, really be tight in future years. Really tight. Whereas you can look at some of the other things on your roster. Rasheem Green got his first pro sack after, uh, against the Packers after starting the year uh, with some health issues. Um, he's extremely young and promising. Jacob Martin is coming on like gangbusters by the week. So my idea would be, when I say priority one, two, and three in the offseason, is... The draft projections are coming out for next year. All the big boards and the top 25 rankings and and even some mock drafts are coming out now from draft analysts. And the overwhelming sentiment is that it's a bad draft for offense and an outstanding draft for defense, especially defensive line. Inside and outside, lots of pass rush help in particular. This lines up really well with what the Seahawks have, what they don't need, and what they do need. So you use the draft to get a dynamic young pass rusher. Because even in the middle of the first round, even if you make the wildcard playoffs and you're drafting in the, at 20 next year, it's such a deep draft. You can get a dynamic pass rusher. You can take another one elsewhere in the draft too. And then you can go into free agency and get a guy that's not as expensive as Clowney. Guys like Dexter Fowler, who's going to be back on the, on the market again unless the Rams just decide to extend him. There's, there's guys like that. The Packers are reportedly going to move on from Clay Matthews. He still has something left in the tank. You know, maybe you bring in a guy like that, like the like the Eagles did with Chris Long, a veteran who has a couple years left and really wants to play for a contender. Has the history with Pete Carroll, played for him at USC. All those things. You do a combination of those kinds of things. Really go after it in 2019. So, I appreciate the sentiment, Colin. And uh, I'm not saying it's not possible. They may they may want to do something like that. Um but I I would I would prefer to spread the money around a little bit more. All right, so this isn't a whole lot of fun. Um I had hoped that I would be turning on the microphone this week and talking about a James Paxton trade when it comes to the Seattle Mariners or some other kind of cool move that Jerry Dipoto made. And instead we have to address a really an ugly situation with the Seattle Mariners. I'm not going to get into every detail. If you listen to me and you're a Mariner fan, I'm sure you know what's happened with Dr. Lorena Martin and the accusations that she has leveled against the organization. I don't need to repeat them. You can go look them up for yourself, but there are two things that I want to say about this situation. The first is an update. Ken Rosenthal today wrote another piece in The Athletic. And he wrote a piece a couple days ago talking about how disturbing this was and how it, it could lead to a massive house cleaning with Jerry DePoto and his staff being removed. He uh, has obtained an email that was sent by John Stanton, the majority owner and CEO of of the Mariners to the entire Mariners staff, an internal email that somebody leaked and Ken Rosenthal was able to get his hands on. And I say someone leaked it because to obtain an email from someone using uh, the public records request takes some time. So somebody forwarded this to Ken Rosenthal. And maybe it was the Mariners themselves because this, this can benefit them. And in that email, Stanton detailed how they had conducted an internal investigation, found nothing to corroborate Martin's accusations of rampant, blatant racism and sexism and bad tempers and foul behavior from Jerry Depoto, manager Scott Service, and director of player development Andy McKay. Stanton says she never filed any complaints with HR or brought her concerns to anyone with the team until after she was fired on October 10th. So at this point, <clears throat> unless or until some third party comes forward with some sort of bombshell that backs up what Martin alleges, and in her social media, um, or it wasn't in her social media posts on Monday, it was in uh, an interview she did that night with the Tacoma News Tribune, she said that she has people to back up her story, but yet no one's come forward. Unless that happens, some sort of smoking gun, some recording, it seems as if this may be over. Major League Baseball is investigating, uh, conducting their own investigation. Stanton says he's confident theirs will come to the same findings, and it sure seems like that would be the outcome at this point. My second thing that I want to say about this situation, and, and the main thing is this. Is there any way that possibly, just possibly, as a society, as human beings, could we consider just maybe being a little bit more measured, more patient, and more reasoned in our reactions to these types of stories? The stupid shit that I saw and dealt with on Twitter the night these accusations broke last Monday, it wasn't just stupid. It was really disheartening, really made me sad. The way that immediately most every one of you chose sides, extreme sides, I saw very little, well, we got to see what happens. Let's wait until all the information comes out. It was either, wow, we've never seen these qualities or behaviors from Napoto and his staff before. They all seem to conduct themselves with the utmost professionalism attack. This is hard to believe. Or, and in my view, from what I saw, most of you just immediately sided with Martin. Maybe because you wanted to believe it, because you have some bias against the Mariners, or maybe you just... I think what happens sometimes is people are afraid to question the validity of accusations because they don't want to be seen as insensitive. But so many of you just immediately sided with her. And and these are outrageous stories. She's talking about Jerry Depoto slamming his hand over and over into a whiteboard until it breaks and throwing F-bombs at her and, and saying horrible things to her. So, so many sided with her, took all her claims at face value, condemned Depoto, condemned Service, condemned McKay, the entire Mariners organization. Without, without even without even all of not just all the information being available but just probably the tip of the iceberg tiny little bit and what was really dumb were the people who took it to the next step screw those guys they suck the Mariners have always sucked this is just another example this is just another chapter in their story it's time to clean clean house Because they suck. They suck the worst kind of suck that's ever sucked. Get rid of them all. Here's what I have to say to those of you who felt that way. A, grow up. And B, why do you even watch baseball? Or follow the sport? Or consume any content whatsoever that has anything to do with the Mariners? If you're that cynical and pessimistic... Then you need to take a good long look in the mirror at yourself. Spend your time doing other stuff. I just don't get it. We may never know what actually happened in those meetings room meeting rooms. We probably won't. Usually the truth does lie in the middle of the stories the two sides tell. It's entirely possible that DePoto, Service and McKay said some of those things she alleges. It's impossible they said some of those things and she exaggerated some of it. Given what's come out so far, including... A lengthy interview with bench coach Manny Acta, who's worked with service since 1989, stating he's never seen this type of behavior, wouldn't work for the Mariners if he did. Also citing other names of coaches on the staff who are of Dominican or Puerto Rican or South American descent. He said he wouldn't work for the Mariners if he ever saw any inkling of this type of attitude. It's unlikely that also on the other end of the spectrum that the events happened exactly as martin describes them they're too extreme if those things happened there would be we would have already heard oh yeah they they would have come out of the woodwork anonymously oh yeah boy he's it's tough to work around him he has a temper that people don't know about you y'all need to know about this There are even people with the Lakers who she worked for for less than a year before the Mariners hired her who say they were relieved she was hired away from them. So there's two sides to the story. We'll probably never know exactly what happened. But it's not all black and it's not all white. Here's what we do know. And I don't feel like this is getting enough of the attention because everyone wants to focus on the sensitive topics. Sexism, racism, those are horrible things. And I'll say this, if I haven't said it. If there's something that we don't know that comes out, and this is true, if Jerry DePoto, Scott's Service, Andy McKay really think this way, feel this way, and behave this way, then clean house. They don't deserve to be working in baseball. Get them out. One thing we do know is that this relationship and this this was a bad hire and this relationship was doomed from the start. There are reports from as far back as spring training and she was she was only hired at this time last year, signed to a 3-year contract, very lucrative contract. A position was created for her to analyze training techniques and methods to try and keep players healthy longer there are reports from as far back as April that this was doomed to failure, that it was a shit show, it wasn't going well, that they were already trying to reorganize her position or change it and take some of her power away because she was difficult to work with or, or the mix just wasn't working. That's on DePoto. I read a couple of days ago, someone implied that he didn't fully vet her. He didn't dig deep enough into her background. Talk to people with the Lakers. Talk to people she's worked with before. That's on the That's bad judgment. And as a general manager of an organization, you need to be better than that. I was a general manager of restaurants and bars for 13 years. I made some hires that didn't work out. And sometimes I made a hire without doing a deep background dive, just based on gut feeling. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. When it doesn't, I would second guess myself. I would regret that I didn't, Call more references. Dig deeper. So that is certainly on DePoto. Is that in and of itself enough to justify firing him? No. From a baseball perspective, I really like Jerry DePoto. And so, yeah, if I have any bias, I I hope these things aren't true because I like what he's doing with my baseball team. I believe he's the most capable GM the Mariners have had in some time, possibly ever. He's greatly increased the talent level on the Major League roster while also making it younger. That is not easy to do, especially given the bad contracts he inherited. He's a shrewd deal maker. Does every trade work out? No. Was the Chris Taylor trade turn out bad? Yeah. But he's done more good than bad. And he's... <laughs> for those people who say he's, he's he's robbed the farm system, he's depleted the farm system. Well, it was depleted to begin with. The fact that he's been able to to make some of these moves and bring back talent that's helping us at the major league level out of a farm system that was ranked in the bottom 10th percent is remarkable. It's, it's okay to separate these two issues and focus on the baseball Focus on the front office thing. If the front office thing blows over, then we get to focus on baseball again. If it doesn't, then we focus on it with new people. But when I say things like, he's a shrewd dealmaker. He's in a position this offseason to make some significant deals that could put the team in a great position for the future. He's got a lot to deal with. There's reports that they're considering a total rebuild, that he's he's shopping everybody. I can hear the eyes rolling I can hear you all rolling your eyes. Whenever you say something like that, the pushback is palpable. We've heard that before. The Mariners are always rebuilding. Which leads me to my final point. And this drives me batshit. Just because it's failed in the past doesn't always mean it's doomed to fail. There are no curses. There are no jinxes. The Mariners aren't doomed to suck because you think they've always sucked. It's different people at a different time doing things a different way. What Woody Woodward or Bill Bavese did in the past has no bearing on what Jerry DiPoto does. And if you think he hasn't done any good, you're an idiot. They just won 89 games. It just happened to be during a year where four other teams won over 97. It's only happened twice in the wild card era that 89 wins has not got you into the playoffs. That roster he inherited was not headed for this. And ultimately, here's the fatal flaw with that way of thinking, if you indeed think that way, that makes the person thinking it look like a complete moron. You can't demand a house cleaning based on the fact the Mariners are never run well, while also expecting them to be run well after the house cleaning. It's contradictory. It's hypocritical. Listen to yourselves. Look in the mirror and repeat these words. Look in the mirror. Say this to yourself. The Mariners have always been run poorly no matter who's in charge, so let's put someone else in charge. You look kind of dumb, don't you? I just hope that the reason we got zero news from the Mariners this week on the field isn't because they're now afraid to make moves. They're trying to stay out of the public eye. Or even worse, that they're reevaluating the plan to retool the roster because they feel that now they need to present the appearance that they're going for in 2019 to try to sway public opinion. That would be the worst thing they could do. Because this time last week, it looked like we were on the verge of a James Paxton trade. Which could be central to the effort to add valuable younger pieces that help us when the Felix contract is off the books and the Seeger contract two years after that. But nothing's happened, except more reports that multiple teams, possibly ten or more, have been in discussions about Paxton. So maybe it's just that there are so many teams interested. Depoto's taking his time, trying to maximize Paxton's value and get the best deal he can. Maybe he's waiting for the GM meetings, which come up in two weeks, where everyone's convened. A lot could happen. I just hope it's not because they're putting the brakes on personnel moves because they feel like the timing's bad. That's all I'm going to say about that unless another bombshell breaks. I'll react to that. But I just want to go back to talking about baseball again. Uh, There may not be a Dan Cave next week. I'll be in Florida, my first vacation in 13 years. My lovely girlfriend is taking me to her hometown I mentioned she's from Milwaukee she also spent some time growing up in Jupiter, Florida so I'm going to be spending a lot of time on the beach she's going to be showing me all her old haunts and great places to eat and see and um, so I'll be watching uh, the Seahawks play Carolina from there I'll be watching the Apple Cup from there as well if some big news happens if a Paxson trade happens if something huge comes along I may just do a quick reaction in the Anchor app and get it posted but There may not be another episode until I get back after the 27th. But I'll be watching the Apple Cup from Florida. And I think it's going to be one of the best Apple Cups of all time. Certainly one of the most important ones. At this point, It's with two games left, well, one against each other. So the Huskies play Oregon State today. Wazoo hosts Arizona. Unless Oregon State upsets the Huskies today... The winner of the Apple Cup wins the North and goes to the Pac-12 championship game with a chance to play for the Rose Bowl. Even if the Cougs lose today, and today's game is kind of meaningless. I'm really fascinated to see how it'll go because they, in the back of their minds, they know that. Are they going to have a letdown against a troublesome, kind of an explosive off of Arizona team that could cause some problems, beat the hell out of Oregon two weeks ago? They can lose to Arizona. It doesn't change anything. They still turn around and win the Apple Cup. They win the North. So it'll be interesting to see how they handle today. But I'm looking forward to this Apple Cup more than I have in years. And and for those of you Husky fans who are already saying, "Well, Mike Leach can't beat the Huskies," or just look at look how it's gone. Well, I think they're they're built more for the Apple Cup this year than they have been since Leach arrived, and it's because of the quarterback. Gardner Minshew is wired differently than Luke Falk. His skill set is better than Luke Falk. Falk crumbled under the pressure of the Apple Cup and of that Husky defense. He became hesitant and that's you can't do that against those guys. They'll kill you. It made us predictable and then it snowballed because then we had to play from behind. Falk just was he had a lot of fear he had a lot of doubt when he faced that defense. Minshew doesn't have any of that. Uh, The offense is more diverse than it's been, and I I wonder how much of that is because of the rivalry. U uh, Dub's defensive coordinator Jimmy Lake came out last year and said, "We all our players knew every play they were going to run before they ran it." Um, Leach has gotten more diverse this year, but I think Minshew pulling the trigger is a different animal than Falk, and having it be in Pullman. Uh, this would be a huge opportunity. I can't wait to see the game and see how it goes. And here's what I want to say about the Cougs' postseason chances. They're number 8 in the college football playoff. And a lot would have to happen. When I started recording this, Ohio State was losing. You never know what could happen. But so many things would have to go wrong for them to get in the college football playoff that I don't think it's possible. I said that two weeks ago. When the rankings first came out, I said it. But here's the thing. I don't care. I actually think it would be better for the state of the program moving forward for the Cougs to play in the Rose Bowl than it would be to go to the college football playoff. Because what if you sneak in as the four seed, right? Go get your brains beat in by Alabama. What does that do? Everybody forgets all about that. They forget you were in the playoff. But to go to the Rose Bowl and all that pageantry and all the build-up to it, play a team from the Big Ten, maybe Michigan, um... Get get another shot at Michigan after the 97 season. Uh, I think it's better for recruiting. It's a lot to look forward to now. This year for the Cougs was not supposed to be this good. It was maybe maybe going to be a 5-6 win team that could squeak into a crappy little bowl game somewhere. But now, the future looks brighter than ever because the senior losses after this season, other than Minshew, are... Easily mitigated. Ton of young talent coming back. Most of the core comes back, and you have um, one of the highest recruited quarterbacks we've ever had. Will be ready to um, step in under center in Cam and Cooper next year. So, good things in store for the for the Cougars. Uh, But I just want to say that on the record, I just want to say that I I think the Rose Bowl would be better for them than making the College Football Playoff. So we shall see. We may not talk again for two more weeks. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Enjoy the heck out of the apple cup. Thanks for listening. Episode 18 is in the books. Please follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. Email me at thedancaveshow at gmail.com with your questions, comments. Leave voice messages in the Anchor app, and I can insert them into the show. would love if you would start doing that, some of you. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Go Seahawks. Go Mariners. Go Kings.